It's Wednesday, July 28th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Sarah Gentry and Connor Allen. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we got a bunch of things to get to, including Netflix. We're going to start today with Johnson & Johnson. Second quarter profits and revenue for J&J came in higher than expected. They also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. You tell me, Sarah, was this quarter as good as it looks on the surface? Because on the surface, you combine the results with the guidance raised. This looks pretty damn good. Yeah. I mean, on the surface, they had a phenomenal quarter in terms of growth rates as they really do return to pre-pandemic levels um, and consumers return back to normal life and spending habits. Um, the key is here, though, and I think really with those really large growth rates you see is that you're comparing it to year-over-year growth. So back in 2020, they experienced a huge decline in revenue. Um, and so a lot of those growth rates look pretty inflated. So you had revenue increasing by over 27% and earnings per share growing about 73% year over year. Um, but it's just really key that we take that with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, but something I do want to know is that J&J's medical device segment experienced a ton of growth at about 63% just in that segment alone, as the surgery market really recovers um, as they're mitigating their pandemic risks um, and also making some pretty strategic acquisitions. Um, and so they're really moving into the robotic surgical systems um, segment and really able to capitalize on those medical devices. And I think that will be a huge area for, of growth for J&J in the future. Um, and this quarter only started to prove that. Um, something I will say, though, is being Wall Street estimates can be pretty negligible, in my opinion. Um, but really what stands out is J&J's revenue grew by at least 13 percent um, in every one of their business segments, which I think shows just their expertise and really being able to round out that growth. Um, they have 28 brands that generate at least a billion dollars in revenue each. Um, and I think it's been a tough road for J&J to really get there and rounds that out in all of their segments. Um, so I think this shows how they're really streamlining their operations well. Um, um, and becoming a high or uh, a stable growth company all around the board. Um, and so I think second quarter earnings, phenomenal, really showed that through this year, they're going to experience that steady growth that they have for the past however many years, since they're truly like a stable and pretty big company. Um, but really their medical device segment stood out to me and really showed the growth potential um, and the potential they have to make more acquisitions within that to become a little bit higher growth. Yeah, I've said this before. There, You go back 10 years, and the story every quarter for Johnson & Johnson is which division is going to disappoint this quarter. So the fact, as you noted, that we got double-digit revenue growth across all divisions is, is really a testament to how stable the company is, um, how strong the leadership is. I, you know, Going to the medical devices, I, I also like the, the recognition of the leadership um, you know, the, the CFO saying, we realized over the past 18 months that elective surgery isn't elective forever. Just sort of, you know, among other things, this seems like a management team that, um, that knows itself and knows its business better than I would say a decade ago. Um, but it, it, it's, when you think about maybe the next 12 to 24 months, Sarah, is, is that the division you find most interesting to watch as, as elective surgery returns? Yeah, definitely, especially as they're making more acquisitions into automated surgery companies. Um, I feel that division is really going to be, if they're going to experience any high growth, it will be in medical devices, um, especially as people get more comfortable returning back to those surgeries that they've been pushing off for a year or two years due to the pandemic. 
Um, so I think that's definitely the division you're going to want to keep an eye out on. Connor, what did you think of the consumer division? Because as Sarah noted, I mean, this is Johnson Johnson is one of those businesses that I think is so much bigger than people realize because most people as everyday consumers encounter it at the drugstore. It's like, oh, I'll get some, some band-aids. I'll get, you know, I'll get baby product, whatever. That's how most of us encounter it. How did the consumer division look? Yeah. So their consumer health business, um, it is what you think of when you think of J and J. Um, everyone knows Johnson and Johnson because of their consumer health business. So you can't take away from the brand equity that they get. Um, from that that segment. Um, but moving forward with this business, obviously they had the least amount of revenue um, was generated from this segment of their business. Um, it's been that way for a long time. So it'll be interesting to see what they do moving forward, um, whether they continue to kind of phase out that side of the business, um, if they continue to put more focus towards medical devices and pharmaceuticals, or if they try to boost that segment of their business to catch up with their their other segments. Shares of Philip Morris down a bit this week after second quarter revenue came in lower than expected. Although profits came in a little higher, Philip Morris stock is still up more than 25% over the past year. Connor, what did you think of the quarter? Yeah, so uh, obviously Philip Morris, um, they're the tobacco cigarette company. Um, they have the brand Marlboro internationally. Um, and look, this is, this is not a high-growth business. Um, obviously, the industry is shrinking worldwide, especially in the U.S. Um, their operational cash flow and revenue have been pretty much stagnant in the past decade. Um, there haven't been any trends in their financials pointing towards um, any future growth for this company. Um, and what was funny, so yesterday morning, I went to go listen to the earnings call, and I, I went to the investor relations page, and the first thing that I saw was, in quotes, I'm not kidding, delivering smoke-free future. Philip Morris. And I thought to myself, what on earth are they talking about? So I clicked on the call. Um, and what I quickly realized was their goal is not really to be smoke free. Um, you know, that is a kind of a slogan that they're, they're trying to put up there. Um, they're promoting this product called Icos a lot, um, which is supposedly a safer alternative to cigarettes. They're trying more to move into um, a less cigarette focused business, um, but not a smoke free business by any means. Um, they talked a lot about ESG and sustainability in their earnings call, but quite frankly, I, I, I don't really buy it. Um, and, you know, it, it seemed a little bit disingenuous to me that they're trying to be something that they're not. It seemed to me like they were ExxonMobil talking about renewables. Um, obviously, ExxonMobil is trying to sell oil. Um, and the same with this company. They are um, they're, they're selling cigarettes. Cigarettes cause cancer. Don't try to be something that you're not. Kind of be honest. And I think that that goes a long way. Yeah. I, we talked recently on Motley Fool Money about Philip Morris buying Victoria Group, this British pharmaceutical company. And they, uh, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of one and a half billion dollars, which Philip Morris can afford that. But Victoria Group is in the business of inhaled medications. And, you know, to Connor's point, this is a business that has made its money and rewarded shareholders, I might add, for whatever you think of smoking, it has rewarded shareholders for decades on end um, with inhaling tobacco. Um, I don't know, Sarah, what, like, what do you think when you look at this story? Because part of me, we talk all the time about optionality and we like businesses that have optionality. Philip Morris is trying to exercise that. 
I, and I'm honestly conflicted on this because because part of me looks at this and says, well, you know, if they want to try and pivot, uh, you know, more power to them. And part of me thinks, uh, come on, come on, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, and I think part of me wants to believe in this turnaround story and that Philip Morris can really do it. But then I remember if I had asthma, would I ever pick up an inhaler that's Philip Morris branded? I don't think I'd ever be able to get there. And so I just think that truly their biggest mo is their brand. And I think that's what's going to prevent them from pivoting in the future. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it shows that they are pivoting towards pharmaceuticals They're or at least they're trying to. Um, I think that they're starting to understand that they are in an industry with an expiration date. Um, you know, cigarettes, I, I don't think are going to be around forever. Um, and, you know, you can already see it. Uh, adult smoking rates dropped from 42% in 1965 to 14% in 2019. Um, what's funny to me is that their brand has been their biggest moat. It has been their biggest competitive advantage for the company's entire life. Um, they have a ton of brand equity in Marlboro. Um, but if they try to move into pharmaceuticals, What's funny to me is that I think their brand is going to be their downfall, um, because like what Sarah was talking about, if you're trying to sell an inhaler with Philip Morris on the side of it, or you're trying to sell, you know, any other pharmaceutical device, um, people might shy away from that, considering uh, considering what the company brand means and has meant for a long time. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got an email from Tom in Long Island. He writes, I love earnings season. But media coverage tends to focus on bigger companies. What is a smaller company, for example, less than $2 billion uh, on the market cap, that you're excited about? Great question. And I'll just say in defense of, of business media, look, when it's the thick of earnings season, we, we got to make choices. So, uh, but, I, but I appreciate the question. Um, so, Sarah, um, you can go first. What, what's a sub $2 billion market cap business um, you think people might want to put on their watch list? Yeah, I, I love this question because I love small caps. And right now my favorite is Bluebird Corporation, um, a market cap of about $650 million, um, but they generate over a billion dollars in revenue in 2019. Um, and what Bluebird Corporation, they're essentially your classic school bus manufacturer in the United States. Um, so as you can expect, their revenue declined a ton in 2020 um, as students transitioned to distance learning due to the pandemic um, and demand for school buses essentially fell flat. Um, but as students returned to in-person learning, as well as we have an aging school bus fleet, um, over half a million school buses in the United States, um, Bluebird has opportunity to recover by the end of 2020, they're expecting. Um, but then just to further propel their growth and what makes Bluebird attractive to me is that both government and private investments are being made to transition our U.S. school bus fleet um, to be completely electric. So they found that diesel engines are really harmful to student health as well as just harmful to the environment. So it's become a bipartisan issue in Congress to really propel those government investments as well as private investments. Um, and Bluebird's the only major school bus manufacturer that produces electric buses in all three models for a school district. Um, and so Bluebird's really going to be able to capitalize on this transition to the electric bus segment um, and the electric bus market and really expand their market share through this transition. So needless to say, I'm really excited about the future of this company, um, not only for students, the environment, um, but and also just their growth potential. And what's the ticker? Um, BLBD, I believe. 
Okay. When, when you said Bluebird, I immediately went to Bluebird Bio, which is a company we've talked about yeah. before. But yeah, biopharmaceuticals and school buses, two very different businesses. Uh, Connor, what about you? Yeah, so I've recently been looking at a company called Dermtech. The ticker symbol is DMTK. Um, they're reporting on August 4th, um, so I'm really excited and, and I'm, I'm anxious to see what their earnings um, does this quarter. The company is around a billion-dollar market cap. I'm also a fan of small caps in general, and I think this is, um, this is one that could be set up to perform really, really well, not only in the next few quarters, but I think in, in the years to come. Um, what this company does is that they're changing the way um, that, that dermatologists and possibly consumers themselves um, screen and diagnose uh, people for melanoma. So typically you have to get a biopsy uh, where you, the doctor checks out a, a mark on your skin that he thinks could be melanoma. And then if it looks like it could be cancerous, then the doctor takes out a chunk of your skin, sends it off to a lab. Well, Dermtech has kind of thrown that out the window. They've created a sticker and the sticker goes on the spot on your skin. They put in a box, ship it off to California to a lab. Um, and then at that lab, they run um, some levels at the RNA level, um, some genomic tests on, on uh, your RNA in that skin to determine whether or not you have cancer. Um, now, what excites me about this product is that they do have some high optionality um, with it. It's not just going to be um, listed through, or it's not just going to be sold through dermatologists. Um, I think there could be a direct-to-consumer um, product that gets put out there. Obviously, there's a, a company called Exact Sciences that released ColoGuard, um, which screens for colon cancer, and they do DTC now. Um, so it's exciting to see what this company has in the future. Obviously, they, they came public in 2019 through a SPAC, um, but I'm really excited to see what this company has in store for the future. I'll tell you what excites me about this business. Uh, I'm someone who's had a couple of biopsies. Uh, over the years. So the prospect of not having to have uh, a small chunk of my face uh, taken out of me, removed, and then uh, sent off and tested, that, that gets me excited. Uh, before we go, um, Netflix was out this, uh, this morning with um, second quarter results, I guess technically uh, after the bell yesterday. We're going to dig into this on Motley Fool Money this weekend, but real quick before we go, Connor, what's one thing that you saw in Netflix's results that stood out to you? Yeah, so Netflix missed on earnings. Um, they beat on revenue and subscriber growth. Um, I was really excited to see that they beat on subscriber growth because it shows me that analysts have finally figured out that Netflix can't grow subscribers by 10 million subscribers a quarter um, like they did last year for every quarter. So um, that's good to see. Um, and, and I'm excited to see what they do in the future um, to, to increase their share price. Obviously, they're not going to be able to increase with a ton of subscribers. They've got so many now. They've uh, I, w I don't want to say that they've captured the market, um, but they definitely have a very large, significant portion of it. More players are coming into this space. Um, so it, it's interesting to see what they're going to do to grow in the future. Um, they, have been, they have been growing in the past four years. I know that margins were 4% in 2016, and they're 20% today. Um, and if they continue profitability, you know, might they add a dividend or, or, or something like that, that, that will be um, interesting to see see what they do. And I'll be watching from the sidelines as I don't own any Netflix myself, um, but but I'm excited to see how this plays out. Sarah, what about you? 
Yeah, as Connor said, they did beat estimates on subscriber growth, but it was their lowest quarter of subscriber growth in about the past three years, um, which honestly really concerned me. But what I did like to see is there was an 8% growth in their average revenue per membership. Um, so their existing members are spending more, which I think is a good sign that they're retaining, retaining customers and people are hooked on Netflix. And so they're willing to stay, spend more to stay on, um, which I think is a great business model and ability for them to generate profit, even if they're customer base isn't growing as rapidly do you have a netflix viewing recommendation uh new girl i say everyone has to watch it it's lighthearted, funny and shorter episodes so it's a good break during your day nice i'll put it on the list connor what about you well i gotta say i've been watching the show called manifest um it's about this group of people who get on a plane and basically travel five years in the future and then get off um unknowingly and then they have to you know kind of weave their way through life, um, come back, coming back five years later. So it's really interesting. I've, I've enjoyed it so far. I am late to the queen's gambit, but just watch the first couple episodes. And, uh, that, that will be, that will be the next few days for me is finishing that show because I, I it's like, Oh yeah, that's why people were raving about it. Cause it's, it's an amazing show. Sarah Gentry, Connor Allen. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Chris. It was great. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.